Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, hey guys, just wanted to give you the latest news about Bill Press. You probably know him, longtime progressive on CNN and on, uh, at one point and with his own radio show. Well, he no longer does the progressive morning show, um, but that does not mean he's gone away. No way. I actually just read that, John. Um, no way. He's out. No way. <laughs> he has a great new podcast, the Bill Press Pod. Ooh, it's got I think actually I think when you said no way, I was supposed to go way. Hey. Uh, especially with the Chicago theme to this show. Um, <clears throat> the Bill Press Pod, it drops twice a week. Uh, that's what that's an industry term, drops, by the way. Drops. Check out the Bill Press Pod. Like for Cliff Bill- and me, where we actually drop the microphone twice a week. Yes, but, yeah. we drop lots of it. Uh, check out the Bill Press Pod for his Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives, like Maxine Waters, Mark Pocan, probably pronounced that wrong, and Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Yes, on a spit, like a pig. Okay, uh, plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters, Commenting on the latest craziness from the White House. Yeah, that's underselling it. Congress and the 2020 Democratic primary. Uh, for years, as you guys know, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in the country. We're glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. Uh, I encourage you to join me. Yes, me, John, probably Rex when this is done. Yep. Uh, uh, in subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go wherever you get your podcast. Search for the Bill Press pod. Click okay. on subscribe. And there you are. You're in for there a true progressive experience on the Bill Press Pod. A thrilling experience, yep. I might add. Seriously, yep. Bill Press is awesome. Uh, I, I've known him for a while. Great guy. Great show. Check it out. So what do Barack Obama and Fred Trump have in common? Donald Trump wrecked everything he inherited from them both. Let's begin. Welcome to the Sanity Cast, the humble little podcast from Stephanie Miller's Sexy Liberal Podcast Network that's all about how to survive and keep your sanity when the Christians have elected Caligula. I'm John Fugelsang. I do a show on Sirius XM. I'm a comedian. I'm someone who believes inner peace could save your life, but external fucking rage 
can be an adequate backup. And um, we are broadcasting and recording here at a very strange time. I'm recording this in the epicenter of the outbreak, uh, New York City, in a time when leadership means tell everybody to violate my own public safety guidelines. That's where we're at right now. I mean, will that and it's Obama's fault. Blame the black guy, right? I mean, first off, Donald Trump is the head. He's the head of the government and the head of the resistance to the government. And then it's blame the black guy. Obama had a huge stockpile of PPE. Trump sent 18 tons overseas instead of sending it to our essential workers. Uh, Obama had a virus handbook that Trump uh, flushed down the toilet. Trump got rid of all the top CDC folks on pandemics and defunded them. Um, Trump didn't order more tests and equipment in January. He knew by January 3rd at the latest, his White House knew in the end of 2019. Uh, the WHO had a predictive model that was used here. Uh, I mean, it was used in Iceland. They wouldn't use it here. And it was accurate. It still is. Um, it's not new science. And if Donald Trump believed in science, we'd be following that. But this is a guy who looks at eclipses. This is a guy giving us public health advice who eats nothing but Big Macs, um, sleeps four hours a night, never exercises, and, uh, well, you know, 73, obese, um, and would never snort Adderall. Uh, but here's the deal. Um, they have to blame Obama. Because it is Obama's fault. Because Obama failed to design and manufacture tests, and by the end of by the time he left office in 2017, he failed to design and manufacture tests for a coronavirus that occurred in 2019. And the worst part now is that Donald Trump has lost the Obama economic expansion he's been writing and taking credit for in between Big Macs and watching Fox News. So you should be looking for lots of trolls to blame the black guy for a mediocre white man's fuck-ups. After said mediocre white man spent two years taking credit for said black guy's economic trends. On this show, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We'll talk about how to explain Michael Flynn to moral people. Part two of uh, my conversation with the nation's John Nichols about the vice president who could have kept the New Deal alive. Uh, why the unemployment numbers are actually much worse than what they're telling us. Some thoughts on Tara Reid and a couple other dozen other women whose names are less well-known. But first, um, let me just say about Joe Biden, I'm rooting for Biden. I'm rooting for him to make people enthusiastic. Uh, I can't wait. I'm waiting for the pivot. You know, I, I've enjoyed so far seeing Biden come alive. He's He's got the basic rap down. You know, when Barack Obama needed a, a wingman who could shout his resume at will, uh, uh, he called me. Like, that. that's great. Um, I'm waiting for the pivot. I'm waiting for Biden to just show up and be like, daddy's here, okay? That's what we need. Uh, it used to be called Big Dick Energy. Now it's kind of called Cuomo Energy. But um, I want to just explain. This is a, an email that uh, I got from uh, Biden for president. And here's the header, okay? Maybe you got this yourself if you're on the mailing list, and I hope you are. Um, but here's another header. Uh, the header was um, another email, parentheses, I'm sorry, exclamation point. And the email began... Hey friends, it's Alana, Joe Biden's online fundraising director. My team and I are responsible for sending you all the emails you receive each month. Trust us, we know that they pile up. But I do hope you'll give me a chance to... And that's when I stopped reading. Okay? Because this is not how you do it, Joe Biden. You do not apologize for sending another fundraising email. You should be sending emails that say, Hey, 
moron, why the hell aren't you pouring money into this campaign? We are all that stands between you and a criminal racist fraud who can't stop lying, who's telling you you have to accept mass death right now, and instead of coming out and calling him a goddamn murderer, I'm going to apologize and beg for money. Right? I'm sorry, Joe Biden should have only one campaign phrase from this point out, and it should be gum TBTB. G-U-M-T-B-T-B. This is all, all, all Joe Biden needs to say. Gum TBTB, which stands for give us money to beat Trump, bitch. That's it. Joe Biden, pivot. It is time to show up and be the boss and be the leader at the same time. Why haven't you accepted uh, started a task force now, Joe Biden? Where is your task force? I know it's great in the basement in Delaware, but there's basements in D.C. that would put you up. You can be giving press conferences of your own a few hours before or after Trump's three days a week social distancing reporters sit six feet apart you do it at a different time so the reporters at Trump's can come to yours as well and you stand in front of a row of flags and you have your own experts that you brought up there scientists who will say the truth because they're not afraid you're going to send a mean tweet about them and you'll talk about a culture and a president that's telling people to accept mass death They're all saying it out loud right now. Chris Christie, Trump, and it's going to get louder. They don't care about unemployed people. They care about unemployment numbers. And don't believe that Donald Trump cares about the economy. He does not care about Wall Street. He does not care about the economy. He does not care about his donors. He does not care about his base. He cares about Trump only. Okay, so everything he says will be a lie to get him through the end of that day's news cycle. And you know what? If the Democratic nominee is weak enough, that's all he needs to do. Biden has to come out and start talking about words like murder or mass slaughter. I think even some of his own people, you know, the ones without a Y chromosome, maybe they'll be moved by the concept of mass death. I mean, you'd think that wanting to kill Americans so he can be reelected, you'd think that would be enough to prevent him from ever being reelected. But here's the reality. 30% of us to 35% of us are blindly obedient. 30 to 35% of us, the same people who watch pro wrestling and think it's real and think climate science is fake, the same people who thought Obama was a Muslim and think Trump is a Christian, and they will do whatever he asks them to do. They will die for him. They would drink punch from a tub if he asked them to. They would send Trump all the money they have in their savings account if he verbally promised to pay them back in a year. So Joe Biden, stop apologizing, start auditioning, act like the president. Stand in front of a row of flags. Take que- I'll take questions now. Come out. Make your statement. I want to give these doctors a chance to talk. I'll take your questions. Joe, please, come on. Get a better basement in D.C. Start it now. The media wants this, Joe. Where are you? I mean, are you, you're, you're still running, right? I will pitch your team zingers. I, I will. I have so many great lines you can use every night. Because America's unemployment rate right now is at its highest since the Great Depression. And here's the deal. And here's what I didn't hear on the media at all this week. It's really more like a major misunderestimation. Just as we know the death count is much higher, because we know it, because so many folks who died in rural areas where there were no tests available got put down as influenza or pneumonia. But we also know that even though more than 30 million have filed for unemployment since the lockdowns began, and the government said there was 20.5 million jobs lost in April alone, first off, we know it's far from equal. We know poor folks, people of color, people in the service industry are bearing the brunt of this. Service workers who are exploited by a system 
are being called upon to risk their lives to prop up the very system that exploits them. And in less than two months, roughly, roughly one in five Americans, 20% of the labor force have lost their jobs. And by the way, women made up a bigger share of April's job losses than men, 55%. So what's Trump got to do? The one thing he can do, and that's deflect and lie. Put the blame elsewhere, whatever he can do. Chinese virus, talk about fucking Prince Harry and, and, and Meghan Markle. And of course, blame the black guy, okay? Uh, now, now here's the deal. Anytime you call them out, they'll say the virus isn't Trump's fault. And then you have to remind your loved one, your friend from high school who hasn't learned how to spell your yet. You have to remind them all, we're not blaming Trump for the virus. We blame him for the inaction, for disbanding the pandemic response team, for lying to everyone, including every person you love for four months, and for calling for violations of his own fucking safety guidelines, okay? Donald Trump just tweeted, because he has to either, his tweets are either praising himself, uh, rewarding flunkies, or displacing blame. Uh, we are getting great marks for the handling of the coronavirus pandemic, especially the very early ban of people from China, the infectious source entering the USA. Compare that to the Obama Sleepy Joe disaster known as H1N1 swine flu. Poor marks, bad polls, didn't have a clue. I know my impression sucks. That's not what this show is about. Here's the deal. Uh, pretty much everything he said there was a lie, and it doesn't matter because lies don't matter anymore. These guys say their lies and they know the lies will be called out as lies and that the people they're trying to reach will never know they're being lied to. Fox News will air these clips. The fans will read these tweets. They will not be subject to fact check. And the facts are, uh, in the case of the H1N1 flu, which he said was much, much worse, um, the disaster, well, that was 12,469 deaths in one year. The Trump coronavirus is 80,000 U.S. deaths in about 90 days. And by the way, uh, we got to shut down the China travel ban narrative every time because the media is repeating it. America is the 38th country to ban travel from China. 400,000 people have flown into America from China since the outbreak began. Over 40,000 people have flown from China to the States since the fake ban was put in place. Those 40,000 people did not have mandatory tests when they returned. They did not have mandatory quarantines when they returned. The virus was already here, and the majority of America's cases came from Europe. We have number one in the death toll. We have number one in reported infections. And a president cannot stop lying to you and everyone you love during a plague. Or maybe Joe Biden will just do a podcast. Um, but here, here's the deal. We just had the worst job loss ever in a single month, 20 million Americans, right? But the stock market's going up. So you're having Republicans and Trump latching onto that one point to claim the economy's doing better. It's not. And this could be an area where you can convince your right-wing loved ones. When I was making the film um, Dream On for PBS a couple of years back and all over the country and in the Deep South. And, you know, I would talk about how in, under President Obama, uh, we saw record high gains in the stock market. And folks kept saying, well, that doesn't help me. And I would say, yeah, I know. That's the proof that trickle-down economics doesn't work. When the stock market goes up, it's important to remember it doesn't really reflect the true economic state of this country, okay? And I said this when Obama was president as well. But, but the wealthiest... It just tells us how the wealthiest are handling the crisis. The top 10% of Americans own 85% of all stocks, all right? I only went to public school, but that tells me that 90% of Americans have 
15% of all stocks. So all the stock market tells you is how the wealthy are doing. It doesn't tell you what they're going to do with their wealth. It doesn't say they're going to open up factories and manufacturing jobs here because they're not. They're opening them up over there. The real number that shows how the economy is doing is usually buried in the government job reports. And this administration is not going to address it. But here's the deal. In the government standard job report, workers are counted as unemployed only if they're out of work and had reported they'd searched for a job in the last four weeks. All right. Now, as of last month, that's 23 million. But that's that's people who are out of job and searched for a job in the last four weeks. It doesn't say anything about people who lost their job three weeks ago and have been searching two weeks ago. And what about the millions of people who lost their jobs and, guess what, could not search for work? Stay-at-home orders are still in place in most states when this happened. And, and all but the essential businesses are closed, so people can't go out and look for work. So again, they can't go out. So, so considering that, you have to add over 13 million to the unemployment count. But even those numbers combined don't really show it because there's almost 7 million people who were not in a position to seek a job prior to the pandemic for health reasons or school or other reasons. And now they need income and they can't get a job. And then you add to but they can't put it down as unemployed. And then you add on to that the additional 3.2 million that filed for unemployment in the first week of May. So that's 23 million plus 13 million plus 6.9 plus 3.2. And that means 46.1 million Americans are now without income. That's where we're at. And that's why we're talking about Michael Flynn. Now, here's the deal to remember, okay? Um, the Michael Flynn thing is happening at this time for a very specific reason. It's getting all of our focus onto something that we should be angry about, and that's incredibly corrupt, and it shows they're all mobsters and gangsters. It shows that people defending Donald Trump don't care about corruption. They don't care about lies. They don't care about being a traitor. You already knew that, but it's so frustrating because we have to address it at the same time, every time we address it, we're playing into their game of taking our eye off the ball of the historic mismanagement and the mass death of Americans they are calling for, okay? The narrative you're going to get now is the FBI trapped General Michael Flynn. Oh, yeah, yeah they, they entrapped him. They did. They entrapped him into lying to the FBI and they entrapped him into lying to the vice president. Ooh, the FBI entrapped him into becoming a foreign agent for Turkey and taking their money and then lying about it on his White House security forms. So he was compromised and could have been blackmailed by anyone while he had access to America's top national security secrets. Oh, the FBI. They entrapped him into saying, in court, I was aware that lying to the FBI was a crime. And he even said he wasn't entrapped. That's how good the entrapment was. They got him to say under oath to the judge that he wasn't entrapped. And then the FBI forced Donald Trump to fire him for lying. That's what happened. Remember, Donald Trump tweeted it. He tweeted, I fired him for lying to the FBI and the and, and vice president. Now, in reality, Donald Trump knew for a few weeks, but he didn't fire him. He fired him not for lying to the FBI. He fired him because the media found out. Don't forget that, okay? He was fired for lying two weeks after Sally Yates was fired for telling the truth. So Trump now says he's an innocent man, but tweeted in December of 17, he fired him for lying. So... When Flynn said, I was aware that lying to the FBI was a crime, in court, he was really innocent. Okay, this is what you're being told now. He was really innocent when he said that because the only, he only lied about having lied in court before a judge. You got it? He lied when he said he had lied. And when Trump said he fired Flynn because Flynn had lied, it's because Trump believed Flynn's lies that he had lied. 
And Trump fans hate lies, which is why they support Trump. If this sounds like nonsense, it's not. This is literally the argument you're going to be hearing for Michael Flynn, who is a who pled guilty twice and said he prayed to God he'd move forward. You notice a pattern here? They fire Republicans and they protect criminals and lackeys and people who are up to their necks in Russia shit. They fired Yates. They fired Comey, Republican. Fired Sondland, Yovanovitch. They tried to fire Mueller. Um, that's one of the 10 counts of obstruction in the Mueller report the Democrats chose not to pursue. Tried to fire Mueller. Uh, forced out McCabe. Forced out Sessions. Pushed out Rosenstein. Um, fired uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and his brother. Uh, but they protest the convictions of Manafort, Flynn, and Stone. You know, like an innocent guy. They push out all the Republicans who tried to tell the truth or at least try to do the right thing for appearance's sake, and they bend over backwards for Manafort, Flynn, and Stone. Now, Attorney General Barr, as you know, last week directed the Justice Department to drop their case against Michael Flynn, and they abandoned it. Um, they threw in the towel one of the most prominent cases brought by uh, Robert Mueller, despite the fact that Michael Flynn is a liar, a traitor, and a foreign agent who was looking to sell U.S. foreign policy for profit. Okay, um, Obama warned Trump about him. He should be in prison. Instead, he's getting zero jail time after lying to the FBI, lying to prosecutors, betraying your country, while thousands of Americans are in jail for nonviolent offenses, or they really were hoodwinked by the cops, and they're dying of coronavirus in prison because they were jailed on technicalities or parole violations. Okay, it's a complete 180. Two and a half years after he pled guilty, and then he got new lawyers. Um, and he began trying to do this. So in January, William Barr, who I'll get to, assigned a federal prosecutor to review the case. And it was that review that led to the move last week to totally dismiss the case. Barr planned for this. This was always, always, always part of the fix. It spares Donald Trump the embarrassment of having to um, pardon him. And so look and see if uh, if, if Barr doesn't try to do this to get um, Manafort out of jail, to get Stone off the hook. They'll do it. They will say that the Mueller report has been discredited and proved a fake. It's not. Ten counts of obstruction. All of it's true. The Republican Party, the Republican fucking Senate Intel Committee, led by Republicans, affirmed two weeks ago that Russia interfered to help Trump in 2016. This is the Senate Intel Committee, the fourth volume of their report on Russian interference. And it's highly redacted, but they, they found specific intelligence reporting to support the assessment that Putin and the Russian government demonstrated a preference for candidate Trump. It's not up for discussion, but it's like Benghazi. The Republicans would have investigations into Benghazi, never giving a shit about those four dead men, just trying to use their desiccated corpses for political points. They used the four dead men in Benghazi against Susan Rice, didn't work, against Barack Obama, didn't work, against Hillary Clinton, and, and they would have these committee meetings and six different investigations that were run by Republicans cleared the White House of any wrongdoing. Six different ones. Donald Trump was lying. He was like, you know, he, he said like Hillary was asleep when this happened. It was daytime when this happened. They just lied and lied and lied. And they don't give a shit about those people. If you're ever debating a Benghazi person, he, here's, how you, here's how you just stop him. But don't only do this face to face with witnesses. You just say, you don't care about those people. And they'll say, yes, I do. You say, name them. They don't know their names. They're not interested. They're interested in using the murder to exploit the pain to smear politicians they already didn't like. And I can prove it. 
Because have you heard any of these motherfuckers in Congress talk about Benghazi since January 20th, 2017? The day Trump took office, they dropped Benghazi like Trump dropped wife number one and number two. Um, so now they're, they're, it's disgusting. Like this guy pled guilty. We know he's guilty. And now he's innocent and was framed by an evil black man who hated Trump. And this is a narrative that you'll see on hashtags like Obamagate, which begin, well, uh, when America's still asleep, but Russia's awake. Always look for the anti-Obama hashtags that are running early in the morning, and you'll know what Sergey is doing to help Trump. John McLaughlin told the Daily Beast, listen to this, my favorite quote, years ago when Nelson Mandela came to America after years of political persecution, he was treated like a rock star by Americans. Now, after over three years of political persecution, General Flynn is our rock star. He said it. Folks, young me, when I was uh, still in the dorm, uh, I worked as a marshal on the welcoming committee for Nelson Mandela when he came to New York. I was at the Yankee Stadium rally. Uh, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, and Michael Flynn is a lot like Nelson Mandela, except that, you know, Nelson Mandela went to jail and he changed as a person and grew and became a healer who brought people together um, and won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Michael Flynn lied and betrayed his own country, did zero jail time. He said he would change, but he didn't. And also Nelson Mandela fought racism and Flynn props up a racist. Other than that, it's it's spot on. So, you know, you, you may have already heard about Brandon Van Grack, who was the last prosecutor from Mueller's office who was on this, who resigned abruptly. The fix was in. And again, Donald Trump's tweet, December 22nd, 2017. I had to fire General Flynn because he lied to the vice president and the FBI. He has pled guilty to those lies. That tweet. That's the tweet. What a climate science, the emoluments clause, the female orgasm, and that tweet have in common. Trump supporting men pretend none of them exist. So now Donald Trump wants to just declare war on the FBI. The people who a year ago were saying blue lives matters are now the people who are saying fuck the police. And Trump's now saying he would consider bringing Flynn back into the administration. This is how dumb they are. They think that somehow this will look good in history. They think that liberal tears are going to buy them a place in the history books. Trump said to reporters in the Oval Office, he was an innocent man. Now in my book, he's an even greater warrior. I hope a lot of people are going to pay a big price. They're scum. Like, in print, in his own Twitter account, he said, I had to fire him for lying. And now he's saying he was an innocent man. Oceana is at war with East Asia. MAGA guys and Oceana has always been at war with East Asia. I tried to say that, and the MAGA guys didn't know what I was referencing. Yeah. Schumer said, uh, President Trump doesn't care about you. He certainly doesn't care about your health. He doesn't care about your family. He doesn't care about testing. He just cares that his cronies are taken care of. And that's true. Jerry Nadler said, this is outrageous. The decision to overrule the special counsel is without precedent and warrants an immediate explanation. I mean, Schiff said, this dismissal does not exonerate him, but it does incriminate Bill Barr. But that's this, this is it. They lied for Trump, which is what Trump expects. And he will reward you for lying for him. Which brings us to Bill Barr who has covered up more shit than cat litter. Now, look, I'm not going to be petty. I'm not going to talk about how Bill Barr looks like Ralphie from A Christmas Story if he never got the rifle and spent the next 60 years punishing people for it. Um, but do you remember when he you know, put the kibosh last year on the Mueller report and put all those redactions in it? My God, I tried to read it. I, that, that thing had more blackouts than my three-way with Liza Minnelli and Lindsay Lohan. Iran-Contra is the greatest scandal of my lifetime. 
up until the Iraq war, I mean, we were sending weapons, selling weapons to the same Iranian terrorists who'd helped kill our Marines in Beirut. Uh, we were lying about Israel's involvement with the weapons and the shipments. We were using the money to illegally fund the Contra baby killers in Central America after Congress passed a law saying they couldn't. We were arming both sides of the Iran-Iraq war. We were officially arming Saddam Hussein and then secretly arming the Ayatollah. These people call themselves Christians. This is William Barr, who, who went before Congress. Remember when he testified uh, against immigration and migrants and talked about the evils of drug cartels to justify not allowing migrants into the country who are fleeing the evils of the drug cartels? And basically what William Barr did was he just, he just gave a workaround for any president ever whoever has a special counsel appointed. It means nothing anymore. Any Democrat, any Republican, all you got to do, fine. Special counsel, investigate me. You let the investigation do what it does. Then you fire the attorney general who appointed the special counsel. You hire another who undoes everything the special counsel did. That's it. <laughs> Obama left Trump a pandemic playbook and Trump left future presidents a corruption playbook. Now, so again, here, here's the arguments, okay? Uh, the coercion. Flynn didn't mean to lie to everybody, and he never told us he was really a foreign agent because he didn't know the FBI was entrapping him, so he lied to everybody and retroactively, secretly, be a foreign agent. I mean, this is where we're at. Like, the FBI forced Flynn to lie, and they forced Flynn to lie to the vice president. They forced Flynn to lie on his White House security forms while he was secretly being paid as a foreign agent, and then they trapped him to say under oath that he wasn't entrapped, and then they forced Trump to fire him for lying. Okay, this is the argument you're going to get, because dumb is more contagious than a coronavirus. But what about the racists? What about the racists? Well, there we go. Obama warned Trump not to hire Michael Flynn. Trump hired him anyway. Flynn was corrupt and lied and was literally a fucking foreign agent. And so uh, Donald Trump knows this, but waits a few weeks to fire him. When the media finds out, Donald Trump tweets he fired Flynn for lying. Flynn pleads guilty. Bill Barr rigs it. And the racists will now say this proves Obama is the corrupt one. Obama warned him about Flynn. But again, these are Republicans. They are original intent constitutionalists, which means they only saw Obama as three-fifths of a president. Judge Sullivan said, do you wish to challenge the circumstances on which you were interviewed by the FBI? Flynn said, no, Your Honor. I was aware that lying to the FBI was a crime. Judge, do you believe that you were entrapped by the FBI? Flynn, no. It's, it's so black and white, and we're alive in this amazing time when this isn't some weird little conspiracy theory or the National Enquirer, this is, this is the White House. This is the executive branch of the government doing disinformation on such an historically large scale. And sure, presidents have lied to us for all time. LBJ lied to us all about Tet. I mean, Reagan lied. I lied about the spies in the U2. They've all lied, absolutely. WMDs. But this is like, there's no plausible deniability here. This is just rank, straight up, black and white bullshit. This is, forget what we were saying in 2017. This is the reality now. And what happened then never happened. Michael Flynn, when he pled guilty, said, I'm going to quote him, I recognize that the actions I acknowledged in court today were wrong. And through my faith in God, I am working to set things right. I accept full responsibility for my actions. So what he's now saying is that that was when he was lying. Because he never lied before. So it, it all comes down to Judge Sullivan now. Because Flynn's still got some problems. Because when the judge asked him about the guilty plea and he affirmed he was pleading guilty because he was guilty, what does Flynn say now to the judge? That he was lying to the judge when he said he was guilty? Well, then it's perjury. And Judge Sullivan, I guess, basically will take the DOJ's reversal under advisement, right? Because the federal rule says the judge has to sign off, right? 
So Judge Sullivan's not going to let Flynn walk out of there. I mean, he asked prosecutors why Flynn wasn't charged with treason. This judge told Flynn, in the courtroom, you betrayed your country. Okay? So here we are. Wilbur Ross lied about Russia. Jeff Sessions lied about Russia. Don Jr. lied about Russia. Paul Manafort lied about Russia. Michael Flynn lied about Russia and swore to God he'd repent. The Justice Department is supporting Flynn's lies about Russia. The president can't stop lying about Russia. America has been vodka boarded. It's all distraction. And it's all distraction from the unemployment numbers. So where's it going to lead? We'll find out. But never let anybody who defends Donald Trump or Michael Flynn tell you they're offended by lies. Anybody quarantining with kids? I have friends who are. With library schools and bookstores closed, Literati has you covered with something truly unique. This subscription book club for kids was founded by two women, two amazing women, to make it easy to find interesting books delivered straight to your doorstep. That's awesome. No more scrolling online trying to find that perfect book for your child or give as a gift. Parents are running out of ideas in quarantine. Literati does all the work for you. Each Literati box contains five books based on a theme with exclusive original art and a personalized note to your child. These are going to Travis's nephews and my ex's newborn. If zero to 12, man, Literati knows at-home deliveries are so important in the weeks ahead to meet your need for attention-grabbing educational materials. Reading books as a family creates a sense of adventure and bonding. And with their curated selection, only keep your favorites, send back the rest for free. For a limited time, go to literati.com slash Stephanie. 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. To get it, you have to go to L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash Stephanie. 25% off your first two orders. Literati.com slash Stephanie. Terms and conditions apply. Now, I'm really excited to bring part two of this amazing conversation that I had with uh, the great John Nichols, who you probably know from the nation. If not, you know him from cable news. You should know him. He's one of the best political writers in America, and he's one of the most decent, compassionate. Like, you ever meet one of those men or women who are just so political, and it comes from a place of such incredible core morality that they are just devoting their lives to activism as a public service. That's John Nichols. He's the Washington correspondent for The Nation. Uh, He writes a lot of stuff for The Progressive and In These Times. Um, He's written many, many books, and his new one is uh, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. My favorite ever vice president. It's a great conversation. Enjoy part two. John, the last time we talked uh, about your book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Policies, I didn't get to thank you for educating more Americans about who Henry Wallace was, because I've always believed that if somehow an ailing Franklin Roosevelt uh, had been able to just hold on strong enough to his existing vice president, that... Harry Truman uh, would never have become, who was not a bad man per se, but Harry Truman never would have been thrown into that job. Uh, We would have had a much more experienced, compassionate legislator as president when FDR died in, uh, in 45. We would not have dropped the atomic bomb on civilians. We would not have kept America at a wartime economy even though you know that was done, the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower complained of, well, Truman gets a lot of credit for that. And I also think we probably would not have had to wait until the 1960s to see meaningful civil rights legislation from the White House. You're exactly right. And that's what I write about in the book. Um, look, Henry Wallace was an amazing figure, complicated, controversial, um, You know, somebody who really was uh, one of the more dynamic figures ever to get near the White House. Um, he was a Republican, a conservative, not a conservative, uh, 
kind of a mainstream Republican of the 19-teens who evolved toward a more progressive politics in the 1920s. and Like Teddy Roosevelt? Right. And when Franklin Roosevelt came along, um, Henry Wallace uh, was approached by Roosevelt, who said, you know, I like what you're saying about farm policy. Wallace was a rural uh, activist and was an editor of a farm publication. And Wallace said, that's cool. They talked. They got to know each other. Wallace campaigned for Roosevelt in 32, which was very, very significant in the farm states because Wallace was a very popular figure with the readers of uh, the publication he edited. And, and then he came in as an original New Dealer. He turned the Department of Agriculture, which he headed, into the most dynamic force within the administration. I know people today find that hard to imagine, but it really was. It was where so many of the ideas were generated. Uh, in 1940, when Roosevelt wanted to move the Democratic Party to the left, um, he replaced John Nance Garner, his sitting vice president, with Henry Wallace. It was a controversial pick, but Wallace proved to be a fascinating figure in the vice presidency because he was very passionately in favor of the war effort and worked really hard to make it a success. At the same time, he always talked about what would come after the war. Wallace had great confidence, along with Roosevelt, that the U.S. would win the war. And then he said, what we've got to do next is as important. We have to beat fascism abroad, but then we have to come home and address the examples of, the vestiges of, the, the evidence of um, you know, an authoritarianism or a fascistic thinking at home in the United States. Now, that was very controversial to say, but he went even further because when there was a race riot in Detroit in 1943, he flew to Detroit and days after the race riot, um, which a number of African-American workers were killed um, it, because we had the integration of defense industries and there was brutal resistance to that at times. Wallace flew in. He spoke to a mass audience of uh, African-American and white workers. Uh, and he told them bluntly that what we were fighting against in Europe, against fascist leaders who would separate out one group of people and say they were inferior and treat them unfairly. That's right was what we had to fight against in America. We had to fight against racism and segregation and Jim Crow at home. That was a radical statement, but it was a right on statement. And the fact of the matter is, if Wallace had succeeded to the presidency, um, the Democratic Party would have changed radically in the 1940s. Um, I think it would have been it become I think everything would have been very different. I don't think everything would have been perfect. I'm not a romantic in that regard. But I do think that by pushing Henry Wallace aside, we delayed progress domestically on a host of issues that exactly. could have begun to be addressed in the 1940s. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. If Henry Wallace had been allowed to stay in there for that fourth term and then succeed Roosevelt, we wouldn't talk about FDR as being this great liberal beacon who had this shining moment when, due to crisis, he was able to bring about so many reforms. Uh, and that's not to say Roosevelt was perfect, but he he gets the credit he's due. To me, he's one of our two or three greatest presidents. Had Wallace been able to stay on the ticket, however— uh, your book lays it out beautifully that we wouldn't view it as being a Roosevelt time. We would have viewed it as being the time of you know progressive reform in this country because Wallace would have gone forward with the fight for the four freedoms. He would have gone forward with more of Roosevelt's new deals. He would have actually taken the ball that Roosevelt put in play and carried it forward into the 1950s and 60s. But instead, here we are. We're 75 years later. 
progressive people or liberal people or just people who have their eye on the future are still working to bring about, you know, real change in both the Democratic Party and, and in the society and fighting for the soul of both. John, if Henry Wallace were alive today, what do you think he would have to say regarding the current state of our politics? Oh, you know what? I, I, I don't know everything about Henry Wallace. I can't promise that. He was before my time. So I could only come to know him through his diaries and his letters, which were voluminous. I mean, it's just amazing how much of this man's record is available. And I know him a little bit from talking to people who knew him. Uh, I tracked down some of the the old folks who actually were his supporters and allies as I was, you know, over the years and working on this. And and I can tell you this without any question. Henry Wallace would look at this terrible moment that we are in, this overwhelming moment with the coronavirus pandemic with the economic uh, instability and, and the threat of a deep recession or even a new depression. And he would see in it massive opportunity. And that was the way he thought. Uh, it's part of what made him controversial. He would look at a horrible situation and say, yep, it's a horrible situation. Um, and here's how we need to seize control of it immediately to make sure that we get through it. And that's certainly what he did during World War II. And then begin to plan now for how what comes after is dramatically better. The thing about Henry Wallace that made people love him, and there were people who just, people hated him, and people called him every name in the book. But um, the, the reason that some people just loved him so much was because he, he was always thinking and writing about what came next and how to get there. And the fascinating thing was that, that after he was forced off the ticket in 1944, by segregationists, and remember the Democratic Party had a huge segregation block, and by corporatists and by big city machine bosses um, who just, they didn't, they knew Roosevelt was ailing and they didn't want, they frankly didn't want a radical mm. New Deal future. They mm. wanted something that was more of what they would refer to as normalcy. And so after he was forced off the ticket, um, the weird part about it was that Roosevelt had a little bit of a, Roosevelt had been really badly ailing. But he had a bit of a kind of an uptick health-wise for a brief period in late 44. And Wallace and Roosevelt reconciled immediately, even though, you know, that Wallace was no longer going to be the vice president. But Roosevelt said to him, you can have any cabinet post in the administration. I, I want to keep working with you. And they decided it would be Secretary of Commerce because it dealt with a lot of economic issues. And Wallace and Roosevelt started plotting out the post-war era. This is not some mystery. We knew what they were planning. And Wallace wrote a book on creating, you know, tens of millions of jobs on, you know, addressing racism, on addressing the divisions in society. And frankly, things that Truman did not get right. This is not to beat up on Harry Truman. It's just to say Wallace recognized there would be a housing crisis mm-hmm. in the aftermath when all the vets came home. He recognized mm-hmm. there were great challenges in American industry where women and uh, people of color had come into industrial jobs. And now what would happen? Would they be forced out of those jobs? Or would you expand industry with an idea to make sure that the social progress, the racial progress that had to some extent occurred during World War II would be extended? He he wrote books about this at the time. That's right. And so it was spelled out. And the, the great tragedy of it is that Democrats forced him to the edges of our politics he ran a 1948 campaign that was doomed from the start. Um, he made many mistakes in that 48 campaign. We should not deny that. And yet, 
at the end of the day, the great sin, you know, that people might apply to Wallace, which was the 48 campaign as an independent that did not Mm -hmm. succeed, you know, and a radical and all that. Um, No, the great sin was 44 when the Democrats had the chance to embrace the future and pushed it aside. I couldn't agree more, John. And I want to bring it to the present now because we sadly see the same moderate versus progressive wings of this party and all the drama that this interparty warfare brings to us. I mean, I'm still not over the uh, Bernie fans hating Hillary fans. And again, Bernie endorsed her. Uh, I get it. He had the better policies. But now all over again. We're witnessing it. If there's any advantage here, I think maybe it's that Senator Sanders is is calling for people to uh, throw their support to Biden now, just so there will be one firm nominee months in advance. And there's six months for Joe Biden to try to uh, coalesce. And as we mentioned in the last part, it is he is on paper the most liberal nominee in the history of the Democratic Party. But I, I want to ask you about a few different factors we're seeing right now with this never-ending story of the centrists versus the liberals. Um, A lot of folks don't understand why Senator Sanders wants to remain on the ballot and why he's really worried what would happen if they removed him. Uh, I was hoping he would stay in the race just because, what, 26, 25 states still hadn't had a chance to vote in this primary. But obviously, I respect his choice. It's not altogether safe to go out and vote. What do you think about uh, Bernie Sanders' quest to remain on the ticket, uh, you know, on the on the voter rolls for the primaries, even though he has officially suspended the campaign, and why is that something that progressives and moderates should both respect? Oh, we should all respect it because it's about it's about maintaining the dynamism of the party. I mean, one of the things that I write about in the book is that political parties are entities unto themselves. Um, we we tend to cover them too frequently uh, based on the big personality of the moment, the president or or the congressional leader. And we lose sight of the fact that, um, you know, for many people, a political party is a generational commitment. They, people have been Democrats, you know, going back to their grandparents or their great grandparents. Yeah. So they've been progressives yeah. going back to their great grandparents. You know, this, we, we lose sight of that. And, um, but a political party remains dynamic by, you know, going through fights, by going through de- battles and then figuring out how to reconcile the genius figure in this, intriguingly enough, is not a Democrat. It's a Republican. It's Ronald Reagan in 1980. Ronald Reagan had been the outlier in the Republican Party, this this very, very conservative guy uh, who was seen as unelectable, who was uh, really disregarded by a lot of the party establishment. But he beat the establishment in 1980 uh, and became the nominee. And yet the party was deeply divided. What did he do? For his vice presidential pick, he reached out to the guy who had said he practiced voodoo economics. That's right. He literally picked the the king moderate, the king insider, George Bush the dad, uh, and put him on the ticket. And that worked, right? I'll give you another example. 1960. Is that not not what JFK did in in, uh, in 60? And and to a lesser extent, Obama offered Hillary Clinton vice president or state. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly it. You look, you want to take... Your your challenge, right? You want to take your, your what you have to deal with and bring that in, not push it out. The crisis in the 1940s, I'm not going to recount the whole history there, but the crisis in the 1940s was they pushed the left out, right, of the Democratic Party. And they pushed people like Wallace, you know, so far out onto the fringe 
Wallace ended up running with Communist Party support in 1948, which was highly con- con- controversial and and was, you know, it, it just didn't work um, rather than, you know, keeping your left within the party. And and that's always the great this is the great fight. And so at this point, bringing it up to today um, with with the the Biden Sanders complexity, if I was Joe Biden and I'm obviously not. If I was Joe Biden, I would definitely welcome a lot of Sanders delegates at that convention. I, even though the convention may not officially be held um, in, in the classic sense, but um, I would want to have that pressure because it's it's how you figure out how to lead, right? How you get good at building a huge coalition is by having pressure to you know, go a lot of different directions. You figure it out. You try to bring people in. You try to build a platform off that. You try to make a vice presidential pick, you know, that respects this. And at the end of the day, you get to a point where you don't just get yourself elected, which is important, but you also create the possibility with the energy of it all of getting a wave election. That's why Franklin Roosevelt was created. Franklin Roosevelt became what he was in the 1930s and 1940s because of the size of his victories mm-hmm. in election after election after election. And again, the size of his majorities. Yes, he went too far, packing Supreme Court, what have you, but he got to do the sweeping reforms he did because he had such enormous historic majorities in both houses. I mean, we, we have to remember that. And I think that it's the, the, the fear that makes so many Democrats get timid when in reality, the boldness is what makes people want to vote for you. That's right. And Franklin Roosevelt, look at, imagine this, what Franklin Roosevelt ran for re-election on, right? You know, an economic bill of rights. <laughs> this guy's literally running around saying, you know, the, the Constitution, that's cool. The Bill of Rights, dig it, man. I love the, the freedoms that we've put in there. But those are political freedoms. Now we need economic freedoms. We mm. need to have a guarantee of health, of housing, of employment. You know what I mean? And it's got to be accessible to all. Um, it, this, it, it, Roosevelt didn't get more cautious as he went along. He got more radical. Right. And and that's what keeps people coming to you. And you know who else realizes this, intriguingly enough? The Republicans. As they've moved to the right. right? Oh, sure. They, they have, you know, they up the ante on it. Now, I think they're up the ante on things that are so unpopular that it doesn't fully play out. But imagine if Democrats, let's say under Bill Clinton, Let's say Bill Clinton had gone for single payer, Medicare for all, health care mm-hmm. in 1993, and he got beat, right? But he conti- the, but Democrats continued to organize around that issue, right? And they said, you elect us, this is what we're going to do. I, I believe we would have had, I think we, we'd already have a national health care program in this country. Because I think you're right. you know, over time, you build toward it, and it, it happens. And some goals are aspirational, but at least you give people something to aspire toward. Exactly, exactly. We could have had gay marriage 20 years earlier, but we just hadn't gotten to that point yet altogether, but we could have done it. I mean, there's so much, we could be in so many places right now. It just seems to be a matter of finding the right packaging in terms of candidates. And and so I, it seems like 
if Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, John, that then it doesn't really matter who the Democratic nominee is. If it was Sanders, we know we'd be talking about ideology. We'd be talking about plans. We'd be talking about economic schemes to try to fix things. But it's not. It seems like if it is Joe Biden, it's just going to be a referendum on Trump. Is that fair to say? It If it is just a referendum on Trump, if it uh, is simply that, yeah. what? If it's yes. just that, then I think there's a decent chance Joe Biden gets elected. Um, I think he, the, Trump, I think has done much to destroy himself just in the last few weeks. And I think it will linger. And also presidents running for reelection at a time of mass unemployment um, don't tend to get reelected. It's a, you know, it, it makes it hard. Yeah. So I, I think Biden's got a decent chance of getting elected. The question is, does he get that majority we were just talking about? And boy, I cannot emphasize to you what a big deal that is, because we have had presidents elected quite comfortably on the Democratic side, only to lose the Congress at the next cycle and and, and then have to end up governing for eight years as yeah. both Clinton or for six years, as both Clinton and then Obama did without uh, the flexibility and the, and the potential of a, of a great majority. And so um, for Biden, my tremendous fear is that he that it is just a referendum on Trump, that it isn't something bigger because he might well win. That's true. But he might not win with the heft and the and the the power that is needed. Exactly. What if it's just like what if his only job is being a one term punching bag? I mean, that's my biggest fear, John, is that this whole thing ends and Biden is just there to um you know, fill out the term, nominate a couple of Supreme Court judges, but in general, no real reform. Well, let me give you let me give you an example or, or another way of thinking. You say one term punching bag. I'll put it another way. What if Mitch McConnell remains the president of the United States? Exactly. Because Mitch McConnell was, you know, whether we like it or not, Mitch McConnell, the history of this time, the history of this time is going to be a biography of Mitch McConnell. <laughs> He, he destabilized Obama's administration at, at key places and, in fact, literally denied President Obama a Supreme Court nomination that was totally legitimate and totally should have gone forward and would have won if they had just brought it to a vote. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he legitimized, quote unquote, Donald Trump. It's, the history of this time is a biography of Mitch McConnell. Oh, yeah. He is our and I don't want it. He's yeah. our Vladimir Putin. He's the master evil strategist who really doesn't care how history will record his deeds. He's just going to win it all now. And I just want to deny him that last chapter. Well, but, <laughs> but John, if, if, a, if Joe Biden at age 77, 78 can get into the White House, it would stand to reason that it's very plausible Democrats could take the Senate, the kind of turnout that would take. I mean, Hillary Clinton did beat him by three million votes. But as I like to say, apathy won with 46%. There's no way Trump can talk 46% of the populace into staying home this time, is there? I mean, is fear of a plague going to be enough? Well, remember, fear of a plague may, be, may not, but brother, we don't have enough time to talk about all the other problems that That's arise true. here. Because let's just be clear. We are now in the midst of a pandemic, which has had horrific impact on, on people's lives, from a healthcare standpoint, it, people have died. Tremendous numbers of people have died. Um, we've had horrible planning. We've had, I, I think, uncoordinated responses. 
which has put us way behind where other countries are in this regard. So Donald Trump has has messed up awfully. And now we've got an economic crisis that is severe. Um, All of that ought to beat him. But what happens if the coronavirus lingers, that we don't get out of the pandemic as as quickly as we would hope? Or what happens if if we have a, a new surge in the fall? And our fall election plays out, and, and we'll have the November election. It's scheduled and structured as such. But what if it plays out against a renewed pandemic threat or an extended pandemic threat? And, and we don't have vote by mail. We don't have the, the kind of structures in place to address that. Um, I live in Wisconsin. In my home state of Wisconsin on April 7th, people with respiratory conditions were forced by politicians to do make homemade masks and go to polling places and wait in line for two hours to cast a ballot just to have their right in a small d democratic society to express their point of view. Um, if you extend that out into a November election and we end up with a lower turnout election than, than we should have, um, there is a possibility that Donald Trump could get reelected. I don't think he will. But um, I think that, you know, many of the fights that we are involved in right now as regards extending absentee voting, as, a, mm-hmm. as regards extending vote by mail, these are not theoretical fights. These are not political fights per se. These are fights about whether we're going to have a fully functional high turnout election democracy. And, and we ought to be prepping for that in a big way. John, um, I don't know your take on Jesse Ventura. I've worked with him several times over the years on TV, on radio. I've always had a very enjoyable time with him. Uh, he's a very interesting guy, very uh, charismatic, likable guy. He has been working for uh, our good friends, the RT Network, for quite a long time. And now we are hearing that he is endorsing the Green Party and may wind up being their nominee. Not to infer too much from the RT connection, but um, how scared should we be of this particular guy when it only took Jill Stein to get only 77,000 voters in three states to tilt this thing for a celebrity racist game show host? Look, I, I, I have covered Jesse Ventura for a long, long time. Um, going back to his run up in Minnesota in yeah. the late 1990s. And, um, and the complexity of Jesse Ventura is that he is, uh, I think, relatively genuine in his passion for a lot of reforms and his disdain for the two major parties. And it is a disdain that a lot of Americans feel. Yes. Um, but I think that, that in this circumstance, I think two things are, are reality. One, I, I don't think that any Green candidate in this cycle is likely to get um, as many votes as Jill Stein did, or might I add much more significantly, as many votes as Gary Johnson did on the libertarian line. And remember, a lot of people voted, a lot of progressive folks or liberal folks voted libertarian because they liked the um, opposition to the drug war. And frankly, Gary Johnson's very militant uh, criticism of the military industrial complex and, yeah. and interventionism. So that's what I like about him. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people who ended up voting for Jill Stein and Gary Johnson in 2016. Uh, and then a tremendous number of additional folks who just did not come to vote. Hmm. Um, 
that created a, a circumstance where a guy who lost the popular vote by 2.9 million votes ended up as president of the United States. And so I, I, I think a lot of people are conscious of that. I think more people are conscious of that. But at the end of the day, what I will say about Jesse Ventura is if he does somehow end up with a Green nomination, I'm not sure that would happen, by the way. I think there are many Greens that wouldn't be all that thrilled by it. Right. But if he were to end up as a candidate, um, I don't think that the the potential base for a vote is is as big as it was in 2016. I think people were chastened by that result. But B, I also think that this is another challenge to the Democratic Party. Exactly. Because if you're trying to organize the opposition to Donald Trump, right? If you're trying to you know, get a mass mobilization against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. You don't go small, you go big, right? You don't try to win narrowly, you try to win wide and you try to, to bring in folks. So what's what, how would I, you know, if I was a democratic strategist, how would I address the reality of a prominent figure perhaps running on the uh, green or libertarian line? Number one, legalization of marijuana immediately. Yeah. Full so legalization nationwide without a question. Number two, an openness to UBI, the universal basic income. Yeah. Um, because it is a, it's, it, I don't think it's an answer to everything, but boy, it's a safety valve. And mm-hmm. then third, third, and it's a big deal, big deal. It's got to be some kind of deep understanding of the need to dial down the military industrial complex and to dial down our interventionism around the world. Doesn't mean that that we become a country that is weak or vulnerable. It just means that we don't try to police every corner of the planet. Exactly. Um, do those three things and, and make that central to what you're doing. I think it, it, it blunts a lot of the, the threat of losing votes to the coalition. And then finally, because Joe Biden is 77 years old and is, is a certain kind of communicator. He is who he is and he isn't going to change. Um, you need to have, in my opinion, a staggeringly dynamic and exciting and interesting running me. Exactly. You know, it's just required. It's not a, it's not a possibility. It's a requirement. Well, you got to my final question, John, if you had Joe Biden's ear, who would you tell him is the ideal person to both turn up turnout for young people, minorities, folks who have become voting age or become citizens in the last three years while still bringing in uh, the majority of all those white folks out there who uh, could be wooed away from Trump? Who would you whisper to him is that force? Well, that's a pretty hard question. And I'm not, I, I honestly have been writing about this, so I don't have the answer because the more you think about it, the harder it gets. But um, first and foremost, I think it, it obviously he said it's going to be a woman and that's yeah. great. That's, yeah. that, you know, I actually like constraints on the choice because it forces you to get more creative. Right? I agree. Um, flexibility. Do you know the worst thing about what, what, a, what total flexibility you can pick whoever you want ends up, what it's ended up doing for the vast majority of American history? White guy, a centrist to conservative white guy picking another centrist to conservative mm-hmm. white guy. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm real cool with, you know, like putting some some requirements here. And so it's going to be a woman. That's a good thing. And I actually think it's it's a pretty good idea to have a woman of color. Um, oh, yeah, I agree. And so I just think I think that's and, and then a younger woman of color. I agree. And so now we're getting now we're starting to to. Uh, as I say, both narrow and expand the possibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, are you, go ahead, please. 
No, you keep, you ask me the question, I'll answer it. Well, I want to hear where you're taking this, actually, so go ahead. I'll give you my answer, but I want to hear what you're thinking. Okay, then I think we're starting to talk about people like Stacey Abrams and people like Kamala Harris, and, and I know those those aren't beloved by everybody there, but also to, you know, kind of look in that in that zone and to be open to um, a variety of other prospects, to look at, um, you know, uh, the governor of New Mexico uh, as a possibility, a, a Latina, um, to look at, um, you know, a variety of other folks uh, who maybe aren't at the top of the list right now, but mm-hmm. who, who open things up. And, and again, I think that if you're a 77-year-old white guy, having a, a young African-American woman as your running mate is a, is a pretty interesting prospect. Totally. Yeah. And a final thing I'll say on this, and I've really thought about this a great deal is, you know, look, your first requirement is to pick somebody that people can imagine as president of the United States. And that's a, that is, you know, that's, they've got to, they've got to think, okay, well, if Biden doesn't, if Biden in somehow is incapacitated, or if he doesn't seek reelection, could this person pick it up? And so that's a requirement on the potential candidates. There's no question of that. But once you've passed that barrier, it's important to understand you're not choosing somebody, quote unquote, you can quote, govern with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can govern with anybody, you know, and you're appointing a whole cabinet, you're appointing all this stuff. No, you're choosing somebody who can help you win, right? To be able to govern. And so if you choose someone who can go out on the trail and literally electrify yeah. uh, great masses of voters. That's really important because that's, that is what decides whether you get to go into the Oval Office. Well, when you get to the electrify, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you're thinking of Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, when I get to inspire, I'm thinking you're thinking Stacey Davis. Have you considered Val Demings? Okay, Stacey I said, I'm sorry, Stacey Davis, she beat in the primary. Um, but have you considered Val Demings? Because I look on her, impeachment manager has the anti-Trump bona fides. Florida, you get a big, big, big state that Democrats have to win, turns up African-American and hopefully young people turn out. But also by having the resume credit of being the yeah, of Orlando, you bring to the table what Kamala brings, uh, saying tough on law and order, the argument that Democrats sadly have to make over and over again to the center. Well, but one thing about, I mean, to Harris's credit, she's evolved on a lot of those issues. She sure has. And, and her strength, and, because she, I think she, her strength is now saying, hey, man, these MST gang leaders, I put them away, but also I know what needs to be reformed from the inside. That's right. And so, I mean, I, one of the things that, and I, I probably get in trouble with this with some folks, I do believe in the concept of forgiveness of past positions. Same. Um, and, and I think that if somebody sincerely outlines a, a vision to go in a different direction, you got to accept that and respect it because we do evolve. Yeah. And um, so I just think that, and I, and I like your idea of Val Demings. I think she is, she is a very, in many ways, a, a, a very natural prospect. And then I just wouldn't stop there. I mean, I know we don't, we don't have all the time in the world, but I wouldn't stop there. I would also say that, you know, look, this process of picking a vice presidential candidate is going to go on for a while. I think there are mayors, there are yeah. members, there are university presidents, there are, there are people who have managed big things, done stuff, former ambassadors, uh, former, um, first, former first ladies, maybe John, just, just, yeah, for the ask, I, just for the ask. 
I, I think I, I think the only problem I've got with that, the only <laughs> problem I've got with that is don't let it be an out. You know what I mean? It, right. You know what I mean? It's fine to ask, but you have to. I want a creativity in this process that looks at all sorts of prospects and says, you know what? Here's this person you don't know that well mm. who's amazing. So maybe, not Oprah, so maybe not Oprah then as a second choice if Michelle says no. I, I'm, I, I tend to be one of those who avoids the, the celebrities and says that, that there are people that can be raised up. You know what I'm pretty high on right now? Tell me. Tish James in New York. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. But we want her. I want her in her job for when Trump leaves office, John. (laughs) I understand, but you'd be surprised by what you can do when you get down to Washington. True that, true that. John Nichols, it's always a joy to talk to you, and I could do this for days, but we already let this stretch into two different conversations and two episodes, and I'm so grateful for it. I want to encourage everyone, everyone, uh, to pick up John's excellent new book. Honestly, every time I talk to you, John, I walk away not just feeling smarter, but I walk away feeling just more hopeful. The book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. Henry Wallace will teach you it's not enough to be not racist. you got to be anti-racist and put it into policy. John, thank you so much for talking to us. What is the best way for my Riff Raff podcast listeners to follow your work? Um, they come to the nation website, www.thenation.com. Um, as my editors there tell me, I tend to, I, I've left no opinion unpublished. <laughs> and of course, Nichols Uprising, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, Uprising on the Twitter machine. John, thank you. We didn't even get to talk about the inspiring sight of all those Wisconsin voters risking their lives for democracy. There's just too much happening. And I, I thank you so much for being on the front lines, being a consistently great journalist and great humanitarian and great activist with all your work. Uh, really an honor. Thank you so much. Now, more than ever, we're all thinking about our hygiene. All okay? day long, all day strong. We're washing our hands and sneezing all into day. our hearts. That's right. But we are still taking a huge carry of virus with us everywhere. Our phones. Yeah. They're a vector for disease and we rarely clean them. I mean, the other day we tried wiping one down I and I was like, come on, girl. You know, we know what we need. This. We know exactly what we need. We are constantly touching our phones with our hands and even pressing them to our face, yes. which is a no-no these days. It's time to take cleaning your phone seriously. That's right. The Clean Phone Pro sanitizer uses medically proven UV light technology to kill 99.99% of all bacteria that comes in contact with your phone. That's right. It's better than wipes and safe for your device because you can't boil it, your Mm -hmm. phone, right? No, you can't. And the Clean Phone Pro gets every inch of your phone clean with the nine high power UVC lights. Mm. Dedicated wireless charging pad on top of the chamber. Wow. You can be sanitizing other items while wirelessly charging your phone or just use the Clean Phone Pro as your go-to charging station at any time fully removable top means easier fit for more items and larger items so you know you can be sanitizing your, your behind oh depending on the size of your behind yeah maybe you're behind too maybe uh, maybe i don't know here's the deal you got to go to the cleanphone.com today and get one for just 89 dollars in free shipping when you use the code sexy liberal if you're serious about hygiene it's time to get serious about cleaning your phone go to the cleanphone.com and keep your phone true clean. Remember, use the code SEXYLIBERAL for a two-day free shipping, <laughs> and we will ship immediately. That's right. That's thecleanphone.com, thecleanphone.com.
thank you again uh, to the great John Nichols. Please, please check out the book. It's wonderful. I recommend it highly, especially if you're looking for some good quarantine reading. Again, it's called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. Ooh, love it. All right. Um, Tara Reid. Now, uh, it's so funny. I mean, every woman who has a story like this deserves to be heard and deserves to be believed. And yet, and yet, we also live in a society that tells us that every man has the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And I can live with this. I think we can walk and chew gum mentally at the same time, okay? Uh, because there are many such accusations. Some are more believable than others. I'm not going to go into a big, long dissection into the parts about Ms. Reed's account I find very compelling and disturbing, and the parts of her account I find very inconsistent and some of them hard to believe. Um, because th that's another show. And if, if you guys are mad, I'll do that. But um, here's the deal. I respect anyone's point on this, and I respect anybody's uh, take on Tara Reid, and I welcome the debates as long as it's someone who is a Democrat or an independent or a Republican who is not a Trump supporter. Um, Republicans who are Trump supporters or anyone who is a Trump supporter, they don't get to have opinions about Tara Reid. It's really simple. If you're a Trump loyalist and you are outraged at the sexual assault allegations of Tara Reid, but you're not outraged at the sexual assault allegations of Jessica Leeds or Kristen Anderson or Jill Harth or Kathy Heller or Temple T. McDowell or Karina Virginia or Bridget Sullivan or Maria Bellado or Tasha Dixon or the accusations of sexual assault from Cassandra Searles, Mindy McGilvray, Rachel Crooks, Natasha Stoinoff, Jennifer Murphy, uh, Jessica Drake, Nini Lakonen, Summer Zervos, um, E. Jean Carroll, Alva Johnson, Karen Johnson, Samantha Holvey, Lisa Boyne, and Ivana Trump, the president's first wife, who accused him of rape. That's the word she used, rape, in a sworn affidavit in 1991. If you're outraged about Tara Reid, but not the two dozen other women who've accused the president of doing what he brags he did, you're not really outraged at sexual assault. Now, um, here's some good news to end your uh, little podcast. The Irish have come to the aid of the First Nations people. Um, as you know, <laughs> this pandemic is a lot like climate change. We have a government that won't listen to science. Um, it was uh, The suffering now is highly preventable. And the most marginalized communities are hit the hardest. And Native American communities are seriously impacted by the COVID-19 outbreak. And so um, one community just got a huge outpouring of donations from the Irish people who are returning a favor from 173 years ago. In 1847, the uh, Choctaw Nation sent a gift of $170 in relief aid to the Irish people who were being impacted by the Great Potato Famine. Now, in today's money, that would be like $5,000. Now, today the Irish are reciprocating this act and donating funds to the Navajo Nation, which has been severely impacted by COVID-19. As of May 3rd, they had at least 2,373 cases and 73 deaths. And I need stories like that because you're not going to hear too many of them on the news. So anyway, Alex Jones, um, not really going to get too much into him. I just want to say one thing about that. Uh, maybe you heard the comment where Alex Jones, who still goes out there saying that... Uh, 
the um, Newtown families are crisis actors and no kids were killed. And he's Roger Stone's bestie. And he said he's going to become a cannibal and he'll be eating his neighbor's ass. <laughs> I mean, Trump called this man fantastic. Okay, think about anyone Barack Obama ever met at a funeral and how he was tied to them. And this man said he's going to eat your ass to his neighbors. Watch the video. You've got to see it. Um, again, we have to remember all this because they're soulless grifters, every last one. And we really, really, really have to remember. And the most terrifying thing about Alex Jones is uh, pretty simple. He's only 46. So um, in closing, I want to thank you guys very much. Uh, I want to say that there's, for every reason I have to be negative, I have 20 reasons to be positive. I'm not an optimist. I'm a recovering cynic. I look in the DC area and I see these like 100 people with 3D printers, mostly in individual homes who are making face shields for distribution to hospitals in the DC area. Twice a week, volunteer drivers gather up these materials from the people's homes and the residents are social distancing. So they just leave the printed parts in a sealed bag or a box on their porches. They printed 3000 shields so far and they were trying to get through 10,000 in April. I hear stories like this. I'm not allowed to complain. I am filled with optimism. I am filled with hope. And it makes me more, more, more than ever convinced that the only way to approach this is to fight hard and love hard. And fight these people, but don't hate them because hate makes you stupid. We're fighting for them. We're like the X-Men. I mean, they think we're mutants. We're actually just more evolved than them. And we're fighting for the people who fear us. And that's the whole thing, friends. I mean, you, our, our right-wing Trump friends have to know this president keeps on lying. He's been lying nonstop for months. Just, just Google Trump and the word lie and March 6th when he went to the CDC and just see all the lies about tests, all the lies about infection rates. Republican friends, the people who are calling out a president for lying during a pandemic are fighting harder for your lives than the president who's lying to you during a pandemic. But sometimes it takes a global pandemic to realize that electing a stupid, corrupt, racist, incompetent landlord with a reality show who doesn't know how apostrophes work and can't name the three branches of government might not have been a good idea. I'm John Fugel saying thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Sanity Cast. We have a great one coming up later this week with one of the most wonderful and verbally clever comedians in the world, Mike Kaplan, who you might remember from David Letterman or uh, being on Last Comic Standing. Please subscribe to all the podcasts on the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Check them all out. And you can write to me anytime at uh, johnfugelsang.com, F-U-G-E-L-S-A-N-G. If you have Sirius XM, my shows tell me everything. We're on every night, weeknights from 9 to midnight Eastern. It is a party. We've had amazing guests. We just had Rose McGowan on this week and we talked about I asked her how it is to hear the phrase convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein uh, we had Tommy Chong call us on 420 day it's been a lot of fun and I hope you'll join us there if you don't have SiriusXM you can stream for free through May 15th go to SiriusXM.com to find out more thank you guys so much be safe peace